This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. Labour's defeat in the 2019 election was its worst in 84 years, losing 60 seats and 7.9% of the voters they managed to secure in 2017. The shock for Labour was not just the scale of the defeat, but that the areas it was losing to the Tories had been voting Labour for generations. The Labour heartlands in the north of England, otherwise known as the Red Wall, had abandoned their traditional support for the party. Old, working-class, industrial and mining towns that had returned nothing but a Labour MP for decades were now flipping Conservative, a prospect that would have seemed unthinkable only a few short years earlier. If losing Scottish safe seats in 2015 was a low watermark for the party, the loss of seats like Bolsover in 2019 was like a deep-sea dive. Boris Johnson, who had successfully taken control of the Conservative Party and crushed his own backbench Brexit rebels, gambled on red wall towns preferring his Brexit Britain to the manifesto pledges made by Corbyn's Labour. Johnson's gamble paid off as Brexit, Corbyn's plummeting popularity with the electorate and years of neglect combined to deliver a devastating and fatal blow for the Corbyn project. But how exactly did the Labour Party lose seats that had only ever voted Labour? How did a constituency like Bolsover, which had been returning socialist stalwart Dennis Skinner to Parliament for nearly 50 years, end up backing Boris Johnson? Hello and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem, with me, your host, Oz Katerji. Here on this week's episode to answer these questions and more about Labour's northern struggles, we have one of the Labour MPs who lost their seat as the Red Wall crumbled. Former MP for Stoke-on-Trent North, Ruth Smith. Before we start, I'd like to thank everyone who has tuned into the show so far and signed up as a subscriber to my Patreon. Corbynism the Postmortem is a 100% solo project that I am able to bring to you for free every week by relying on the kind support and subscriptions of patrons. If you would like to support the show, please consider becoming a subscriber over at patreon.com forward slash ozcategy or donating via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash ozcategy. And now on with the show. Hello Ruth, thank you for joining me on the show. Pleasure. So Ruth, what do you think Corbynism got right? <laughs> so I knew you were going to ask that question, and so I really struggle. It's been asked to everyone. I know, no. but I, I really struggle. I know that yeah, there is a the Labour Party reimagining the Labour Party as a Labour movement, not just a Labour Party. And for me, I'm a trade unionist, so a new relationship with the trade unions. Um, for the record, one that isn't just defined by Len McCluskey, but actually a much broader relationship with the trade unions. That was a good thing. Um, I struggle after that. It's been a really, and you know, in a very different way to some of the other people you've spoken to, but this has been such a painful period of my relationship with the Labour Party. Um, and for me, that he is the cause of that. So it's a different kind of relationship I have now. So we haven't really touched upon Len McCluskey at all in the, in the podcast. Len McCluskey, for our viewers out of the country, is a leader of one of the largest trade unions in the country. He's a northern working class, big voice on the left. 
huge. So I used to work for the trade union that he is general secretary of. So that's the the part of the labour movement I come from. Um, Len McCloskey is a bold, uh, being very polite, he's a bold, huge figure in the labour movement in the traditional style of a trade union kingpin who uh, would like to leverage his power. I would be critical of his industrial um, influence. I don't think the union is as industrial as it should be, so they're not doing the things for their members that I would have historically expected them to be. But he has definitely participated as a huge figure in the political arena in the, uh, since Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party in a way that in my lifetime General Secretaries of the Labour Party haven't done. So you said you wanted, you know, you, you like the greater relationship with the, with the trade union, but why was this not to your liking? Okay, so for me, the Labour Party's always been the political wing of the trade union movement. That's what we were established to be 120 years ago. That's who we are. There is a difference between being the political advocacy for working class people, which is what the Labour Party was created to be, and a political tool of one man. Um, and I think that whenever one person has too much influence in what is a collective, what is a movement, that can be incredibly dangerous. Um, it also skews who we really are. Len may well be a scouser, Len may well be from working class roots, but Len doesn't necessarily represent what those roots are and what those views currently are and where we need to be. And there are trade union general secretaries, Dave Prentice, Tim Roach, who are brilliant, brilliant people, Paddy Lillis, who have who have leveraged their political influence in a way that is beneficial for their members and therefore for the country. I think uh, Len at times has leveraged his influence in a way that is beneficial for him, not necessarily for his members. And that has been to the detriment of everybody. And I say that as one of his members. My, um, my dad um, was on the executive of one of the um, forerunners of the union. My mum was deputy general secretary of Amicus, one of the forerunners of the union. I literally was involved in trade union politics from birth because that was who I am. So I say it from a position of strength and and knowledge, not just because I don't like Len McCluskey. So you used to represent Stoke-on-Trent North um, as MP. Why do you think Labour lost areas like yours in the 2019 general election? So it had been coming for a long time. We'd taken seats like mine for granted. Um, when I got selected in my constituency in 2014, we'd only ever spoken to 2% of the electorate. This wasn't a campaigning, door-knocking, active, vibrant constituency party. And it had amazing people in it, and they were very involved in their community, but not necessarily as the Labour Party. So there was um, there was challenges, and that was the case across a lot of swathes of the country, that we'd allowed a political vacuum to be created, assuming that people would always vote for us. In Stoke, historically, that had manifested either in not voting, so voter turnout was really, really low in the potteries, Um, and at local elections, they voted for independents, not really for Tories, they don't like them, but they voted for independents, and they hadn't done that at national level, barely it had been coming. Um, What was, um, you know, I can blame Jeremy Corbyn for a huge amount, and they really didn't like Jeremy. Um, If Jeremy hadn't been leader, I'd still be a member of parliament. However, our disconnect with those voters had started way before Jeremy arrived. What he did was put it on speed. Um, So um, I thought it would take me my political lifetime to rebuild the relationship between the Labour Party and the people of Stoke-on-Trent. It will still take me my political lifetime. It will just be um, not as their Member of Parliament, at least for a little while. 
So most of the people we've interviewed on the show so far have come at this from a sort of Remain position, but you as an MP um, didn't back a second referendum. Do you think that position cost you in places like Stoke-on-Trent? I think the the crap position that we had on Brexit, the lack of clarity of our position on Brexit, and the lack of leadership on Brexit cost me in my constituency. It would have been much easier, I think, if the Labour Party had been fully-fledged Remain or fully-fledged Leave, a different kind of Leave, which is exactly what we, you know, why would we, why would we ever have supported a Tory Leave? And I ended up having to vote for Boris Johnson's deal, but why would we ever have voted for a Tory Leave? We needed our own version of Leave. But I could never get the Labour Party to articulate what a Labour Leave would look like because the people in control of the policy didn't really want to leave. So it turnout in my constituency is usually around 50%. For the referendum, it was over 70. I had a 73% um, leave vote. I was the uh, third highest leave Labour leave seat in the country. My electorate sent me a test. Most of the people that had become totally disenfranchised from politics, had completely cut themselves out from politics, asked to be heard, and we chose not to. And it, as it turned out, it didn't matter whether they thought I listened to them or not. Um, they just thought that the Labour Party didn't listen to them. And um, I was adamant that a second referendum was nonsense. It's not that I'm opposed to being in the European Union. I campaigned for Remain. But there is a democratic deficit that exists in the UK. And that was made much, much worse by ignoring, and worse, not just ignoring um, the referendum result, but then playing political games in Parliament. Um, so it looked like we were messing people about and that we were ignoring them and that their their voice wasn't of value and the only people's voices of, that were of value are those that were in London or in metropolitan elites. And we made it so much worse for ourselves as a party. I had some of my colleagues who wanted to, who out you know who stood up and called my electorate thick and called them racist and said it was all about immigration. Having never come to Stoke-on-Trent, having not spoken to my voters, having not engaged with them, and not realising that life for them is really quite tough, and they weren't convinced that life could get worse for them. So they voted leave because they wanted to send us a message. We deserved a kick-in as far as they were concerned. The establishment deserved a kick-in. And then we responded to that by ignoring them again. So it's no surprise that they went, what are you playing at? And you're not going to listen, and I want this done, so I'm going to vote for the one person that I think is going to get it done, and then I might come back to you or not. That was the end of part one. But before we jump into part two, I'd like to talk to you about a really great tool I've used for years that I'd love to share with you. As a journalist, I've worked in some pretty crazy places, and sometimes it's really important to be able to use the internet securely and mask your IP address. And thanks to an amazing tool called ExpressVPN, I was able to do that with real peace of mind. ExpressVPN has helped me access Wikipedia, Twitter and other vital online services in places where they would be otherwise banned. But it isn't just a useful tool for journalists. ExpressVPN lets me watch Netflix in other countries and it provides me with a much safer, securer way to shop online and to browse. Luckily, my friends over at ExpressVPN are offering a great deal for listeners of this show and are giving my listeners three months free trial of the service for anyone who downloads the software using the link expressvpn.com post. So head on over to expressvpn.com post now and give it a spin. And now on with part two. 
So, you know, you said that you've, you voted and campaigned for Remain during the referendum. Um, you must have quite conflicting feelings about that. Um, you know, obviously, it might, must have been quite difficult to go from that to, to then, you know, going against your party wishes at times in, in, in you know, wanting not to have a second referendum or wanting to see a, maybe a softer form of Brexit done than the Tories were pushing, at least. I think it's... <laughs> There's been so many moments of fracture within the Labour Party over the last four years, and Brexit was definitely one of them. The bit that I had, you know, it was devastating for me to... I tried desperately not to fall out with my friends um, who were uber-Remainers and who represented areas that were strongly Remain and they were respecting that vote. Um, and But why their constituents' votes were more valid than my constituents' votes. So there was... An, I didn't want to fall out with my friends. And so I ended up removing myself from some of my friends on occasion in a, I don't want to have these arguments with you. And then it became even harder. So the reality is the Labour Party should have voted for Theresa May's deal. We got a huge number of concessions in it. It was going to be the softest possible Brexit. I think we're now going to leave at the end of the year with no deal. And that is in, and we are just as culpable for ending up in this place because people became so intransigent on both sides of the argument, even within the Labour Party, um, that we couldn't even negotiate with the Prime Minister in good faith. Um, and then we'll end, and, and everyone, no one believed that we'd ever end up in this place, even after Boris Johnson became Prime Minister. And yet, look where we're, we're about to end up. You know, Boris Johnson's about to start the US trade negotiations. What's going to be in that? Really, how's that going to benefit my constituents? So all of this was done because we just so we were right we won the argument that sound familiar um we didn't matter that we hadn't won but we were winning the argument it's nonsense and in the interim my constituents get screwed as does everyone else's that um that is the, at the most vulnerable and it's because of the way we acted in no small part and it was really crap because i but i never thought i'd vote in different lobbies to some of my closest friends and i had to so you know, you've highlighted Jeremy Corbyn and Len McCluskey as two figures in the sort of Corbynite wing of the party, at least, that you disagreed with and you, you, you didn't like their their style of leadership, as it were. But with Jeremy Corbyn being, you know, at least well known before his leadership as a Eurosceptic, a committed Eurosceptic, and Len McCluskey being one of the loudest voices in opposition to to a second referendum, weren't you sort of kind of in wing or at least sort of on Corbyn's side of the argument so yeah at various points you find yourself in with very strange bedfellows um bizarrely at um at points during the last few years on Brexit I had exactly the same views as Len McCluskey it would only have been on Brexit but that should have been no surprise to anybody really because we're all part of the same party there is a reason why fundamentally we join the, the same party and why we believe in different uh, why we believe in similar things I am still an internationalist. I am still a. Um, um, I still fight racism with every bone in my body. I'm still me. I just think that some things were more important than whether we were a member of um, a European institution or not, an international institution or not. And that was about what happens on the streets in the UK and whether people could trust politicians, the long-term democrat and democratic issues around that. And I found myself on the same side as Len McCluskey. But for the record, I was just as horrified at how little campaigning had been done by the leadership for Remain. I mean, I, I did campaign for Remain. I went door knocking 
I went door to door in Stoke-on-Trent. That is a much harder thing to do to ask people to vote for Remain in Stoke-on-Trent than it was to ask them to vote for Remain on the streets of Islington. So um, it's not that I wasn't brave in doing the things I wanted to do, and I did end up on the same. You know, of course, I was on the same side as them. But then it was a pragmatic approach as opposed to an ideological one. Can you tell me more reasons why you think Labour lost the Red Wall? Uh, so I think the the Red Wall was the second Red Wall. I love the phrase the Red Wall because that didn't exist before the twelfth of December, as far as I know. Um, Scotland came first, and we didn't pay attention. Twenty seventeen election. We lost three seats and no one wanted to... I mean, we lost more than three, but we, there were certain seats that we lost. Um, Middlesbrough, um, uh, Mansfield, Stoke-on-Trent. And no one was prepared to ask why. So um, Gareth Snell, who's my neighbouring MP in Stoke-on-Trent, who was my neighbouring MP in Stoke-on-Trent Central, and I kept raising the fact that we had lost Stoke-on-Trent South. And was anyone going to oh, find out why we'd lost Stoke-on-Trent South? Why had we lost Mansfield? And what were we going to do about it? Because that was the opening gambit for where we've ended up. Um, We lost in my seat at this election for uh, a whole host of reasons. Brexit was definitely one, but actually it was leadership around Brexit. So um, uh, on the doors, the issues that were raised with me were one, Jeremy Corbyn, and two, racism in the Labour Party, and three, uh, Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn. So it always came back to... Jeremy's leadership or lack of it in my opinion lack of it um and that they didn't trust him to run the country and that was on and the fundamental issue of our time on Brexit but on every other issue too but it was all about Jeremy so devil's advocate here I will we'll leave anti-semitism aside which we'll come to later but um you know Jeremy Corbyn's a Eurosceptic Len McCluskey's a Eurosceptic they're both you know trying to adapt to the post-Brexit, uh, post-Brexit referendum reality. And they're both, you know, trying to le- at least, you know, trying to push the party towards a leave position. Uh, Corbyn's supporters will argue that it was actually the centre of the party, the Keir Starmers, the Emily Thornberrys, that dragged the party towards that second referendum position. And they'll blame that the reason why everyone hated Jeremy was a relentless centrist and Tory smear campaign against him that's why everyone in your constituency hated him because they kept making stuff up about him that wasn't true um and you know in 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 reality he was he was with them he was with the people of stoke he wanted to leave the the eu he wanted to give the establishment a kicking that's jeremy and we've been outdone by these you know damned centrists and their second referendum plan oh i think on so many levels it's hilarious like the idea that we bullied the leader of the labor party he wanted to be prime minister he's not going to be bullied by a group of unnamed or on lots of occasions named people he wanted to be prime minister or he said he did um the issue about his euro skepticism or not is that no one understood what it was so he was never if he came out and said i think everyone actually regardless of which side of the debate you're on if he came out and said i'm for leave and was clear on it at least we'd have known where we stood but if you knocked on two doors or you know if you knocked on two neighboring doors and you'd have someone that was Remain and someone that was Leave, they both hated our policy uh, because they didn't understand it. Because you, and you couldn't articulate the policy in 10 seconds. Yeah. Are, are you for Leave or Remain? Well, we're sort of maybe for both. Whatever you like. You, we are yours. You can have... You choose. Because we don't want to make a decision on the most important issue of the day. Our policy, bizarrely, probably ended up in the right place, but it ended up in the right place 12 months too late. 
if we'd have gone if we'd have been saying that 12 months before that um we were going to renegotiate our own deal and then put it to you that's okay i just i just struggled to you know I, I still think a second referendum would have been crazy and wouldn't have helped deal with things in the country but you could have done that but by the time we'd had the anger and the messing around in parliament and um the toxic nature of the debate that it had become and Boris Johnson being Prime Minister, we were way beyond that conversation. So it was really, really poor political storytelling at a basic level. It was a lack of understanding about the electorate. And it was, in fairness to Jeremy, not words I usually say, but in fairness, really difficult. Because his seat, 80% remain, my seat, 73% leave. And yet you want to be Prime Minister of both. So, which, but it does bring to the question, why would you have a general election when that's going to be the most important issue when you haven't remedied that issue for yourself and you, you walk into this? But, so it was never going to be easy for him, but it would have been, you know, he talked about honest politics. It would have been so much easier for all of us if that's what we'd actually have had. Anna Turley, who we had on the show, she might come at this from a different perspective yeah. to you because she would say that no form of Brexit... Uh, no form of Brexit would work for her constituents and that's why she was opposed to it because she felt like she had she was duty-bound to represent them and uh, the best way she felt she could represent them was by opposing something that would hurt them, in her view, economically. You had a very different sort of position mm. to this. I am, and it, I, I hate that... You, actually, I hate that you've just named Anna because I love Anna, yeah, Anna's one of my closest friends, political friends, but... Anna and I had very, very, very different view on all of this. I think there are... Um, my electorate knew that they were going to be economically worse off. If they knew anything, if they took anything from the election, uh, from the, um, the messaging around the referendum, they, knew, they weren't stupid. They knew that economically that, uh, that we were going to hit a, ref, um, a recession. They didn't care. They didn't th- for a lot of them, they didn't think they could become more worse off than they already were. And longer term, they thought that they would have more control over who they are and what happened to them. So it wasn't an economic argument for them. And so if it, you only focus around the economics of it then and miss the identity aspect of it and miss the democratic deficit aspect of it, then you've missed what's happening on the ground. Um, my electorate... I campaigned like I knew what they wanted I know who they are I live there it's my home they knew that they they're waiting for the recession I've made this argument at a workplace meeting I did during the referendum I was like this is going to be the worst divorce in history and they'll have to give us appalling terms to um in the deal that we get when we leave because the um to stop everyone else wanting to leave too and um and someone came back to me and went Divorces are grim, but 10 years after the divorce, you're much, much happier that you did it. And that's really difficult to come back on. So that, and it was the, the first argument. I was like, oh, I don't know how to rebut that. And I was just going through my own divorce. And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know how to rebut that. So we had the wrong emotional message. It wasn't economic. It was emotional. And it had been emotional for 30 years. And this was our own fault. It, this has been going on for decades. Anything good that came out of Europe for the last 30 years, the government of the time took credit for, whether it was the, yeah, the Labour Party did it, the social chapter, and paid leave. 
We implemented it, so we took credit for it. We never once said it was a European directive to the general public. We never once said anything that came out for Europe was good. But if something crap came out of Europe, if something, um, if there was a piece of regulation that we thought was insane or was about standardising, you know, all the nonsense about bananas or whatever it might have been, we blamed Europe. So were we really surprised that when we had the a binary question of should we stay or should we go? when nothing apparently good had come out of Europe for decades, that my electorate, who felt completely detached from what's going on, who had suffered from six years of austerity at that point, who felt that they hadn't been listened to even when the Labour Party were in government, why were we surprised that they told us where to go? And so this had been an emotional response to who we are, and it was a test to see if we listened. I wanted to answer them and I want you to listen and that wasn't where we ended up. Do you think there's a mirror between what happened in Scotland and what happened in the northern Labour heartlands? I think that there is something about having taken seats for granted. Um, The concept of safe seats that um, you know it was a a wonderful thing to get selected in a safe seat because you could spend all your time in London it's not something that's not how I chose to be an MP but um, There were some people who embraced that. And obviously, the further north you go, the harder your commute is to London every weekend. So, you know, there was a... Every week. So you did end up spending more time in London, I think. Which means you're not active on the ground. You stop... You get disconnected from your community, even if you've got the best of intentions to be part of it. Um, We should have noticed... I don't... And in hindsight... Hindsight's a beautiful thing. But we all just took it for granted that we just lost Scotland and that was an inevitability. It wasn't. Um, But there is something very unique about post-referendum politics. We saw it in Canada and we've never discussed it in the UK about what the impact and long-term impact of our referendum was going to be on the UK. I think what is, you know, political genius, at least in the medium term for the Conservative Party, they caused, they called and ran both of these um, referendum. Um, they should be punished for the impact that it's had and actually they've been rewarded in both instances. And it's been the Labour Party who wasn't in government, who uh, wasn't really empowered to make significant changes and were just participants rather than leaders of these uh, these campaigns, that we've been punished ruthlessly by the electorate for seemingly letting them down. So the argument is uh, from a lot of Corbyn supporters that uh, to win back these northern seats, they need someone that speaks to them, which is why Rebecca Long-Bailey is such an excellent candidate. But at the end of the day, lots of these seats voted for Boris Johnson, a man they knew to be, you know, they perceived to be a liar, a man they perceived to be, you know, an establishment figure who'd been to Eton. So why why is that what can you tell me about how you know labor want to fix a problem that maybe seems to be only a creation in their mind when it comes to what sort of leader northerners want i think we treat northerners like they're uh, i mean i represent stoke on i represented stoke on trent i live in the potteries it's the north of the midlands so but we treat people outside the m25 like they're a different breed like they're an alien class and it is nuts what the people in the uh, in the north want is what the people in Kent want, and in the southeast want, and in Devon want, and in Scotland want, in Wales want. They want leadership. They want strength. They want security, and they want to only have to worry about making sure their families are all right. And they don't want. You know, government is meant to facilitate them. 
to facilitate their lives. It's not meant to get in the way and it's not meant to scare them. And we were both scaring them and saying if we won, we were going to get in the way of their lives. And so this was our... So it isn't necessarily about um, about someone's background or um, what gender they are, although obviously I would prefer a woman. But having said that, it's about someone that they can look to that's going to be Prime Minister, someone that they are confident in, that they think is competent, they did not think Jeremy Corbyn was competent, and that is going to make their families' lives easier. Those are not difficult things in theory. That is not what we offered them. In terms of um, Rebecca Long-Bailey, it's continuity for what was just overwhelmingly rejected. Like, let's be clear, we just had our worst results since 1935. We are, I mean, my big concern about the leadership election is no one's really saying that enough. We just got decimated, completely decimated. And as was said, as was pointed out to me about 35, we gained seats in 1935. So although we're comparing it as our worst ever result, we're on the up in 35. We are not on the up now. This is existential for the Labour Party. We don't have a right to exist. And the swing needed at the next election, we need 10.52% swing. Tony Blair in 97, with the biggest swing achieved in national politics, was 10.38. We've never done that before. And that's to get a majority of one. It's hard with a majority of one. So... In terms of the Labour Party, I mean, the biggest criticism I have for Jeremy Corbyn is I think he broke the Labour Party rulebook. Clause one of the rulebook is to get government, is to get the Labour Party positioned as a party of government. He did not do that. He broke the Labour Party rulebook. As a Jewish MP, you obviously suffered a lot from the abuse that was uh, going uh, taking place in the party. Mm. Can you talk to me a bit about the anti-Semitism crisis from the start to where it ballooned to. Okay, I was targeted. Um, these people didn't make me suffer. I won't allow these people to make me a victim. Um, so, I was obviously, I've listened to your podcast from before, and it's interesting because actually no one's talked about uh, what happened to Oxford Union and the Royal Review because that was the first one. So, um, at the this all happened really quickly after Jeremy became leader. Uh, January, so I was um, uh, on the Parliamentary Committee, I was Vice-Chair of the Parliamentary Labour Party, and I had the privilege of meeting with Jeremy Corbyn once a week, well, in theory. So I started raising issues around anti-Semitism with Jeremy in January 2016, um, and that's when we got the Royal Inquiry into what was going on at Oxford Union Labour Students. And it was pernicious, it was horrible it was vile and it was kids that were being targeted young people who were being targeted and they had and they were very isolated within the Labour Party um Jan did a review never got published and because of the way at that point that the leadership of the Labour Party were dealing with anti-semitism as it started first to first to emerge so within months of Jeremy becoming leader they um I made an argument that they were empowering people to continue because they looked like there wasn't any sanction. You could say and do whatever you wanted with the tacit permission of the Labour Party. Um, and it got worse, and then that led to the Chakrabarti review, uh, which I am now synonymous with, even against everything that I'd want to be. Um, it had become increasingly uncomfortable 
um, in the Labour Party. And I say that from a position of authority and power because I had an office that protected me. I had worked for Hope Not Hate and for CST. I had run the Jewish community's anti-BMP campaign and I'd run Hope Not Hate's anti-BMP campaign. I, I had spent my life fighting racists and seeing anti-Semitism. And then I was starting to see it in the Labour Party. And for the record, the bit why, why this was so painful, why this has been so horrible, is anti-Semitism exists in all bits of society. Of course it does. But this was within the Labour family, them targeting people because they were Jewish. This wasn't a Nazi on the street or a left-wing lunatic on social media. These were people who were identifying themselves as part of your family, as part of your culture, as part of your society, saying that I had no right to be in the Labour Party because of who I am or what I stood for. Um, the reality is I was unknown. I had not been an MP for very long. Um, I was just, I was an irritant to Jeremy Corbyn. I was core group hostile, I think. Core group negative. I hadn't quite made hostile. I was still core group negative when they did that. But, you know, it was on well, that stupid list. But I wasn't relevant. I was just a, I was a baby backbench MP. Um, but I had been vocal in private with Jeremy, which was always my, I always wanted to be private, to do it in private. I am very aware that every time anti-Semitism is on the front page of a national newspaper, someone gets hurt because it leads to a spike in anti-Semitism, and I did not want to be part of that. Um, so what, what did you talk to Jeremy about then in private? So I asked Jeremy to do three things, which I continued to ask him to do for two years, and he didn't do any of them. So I had three tangible things I thought he could do to stop this. The first was to choose some of the abuse that Luciana and I got online, retweet it, and say this was not done in our name, in his name, and this was not accepted in the Labour Party, and to throw him out. Um, I thought he could do a very private visit to Yad Vashem, a very, very private visit to Yad Vashem. When it became clear that he might not get into Israel later on, then I suggested Auschwitz, but he did a very, like, that he should do a very, very private visit, and then come back and talk about the impact that had had on him, but do the video back in the UK, not at home, no, not, um, not either at Yad Vashem or at Auschwitz. And then I said, because I thought, and I did try and position this repeatedly, as chair of Stop the War, he, was in a, he had a unique authority to do a massive speech to outline the difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism and what the red lines were. He could genuinely have been a force for good in this debate if he'd chosen to be, and he could have put it to bed in March 2016, and it could all have gone away. So it wasn't that I was continually attacking him. I was very much begging, and but I'm genuinely begging for this not to be an issue within the Labour Party because I did not want to be defined by my faith and identity. I am a Labour Party activist and have been since I was eight years old who happens to be Jewish. Um, that, as it proved, wasn't to be. But if I tell you that when... Um, so I was uh, PPS to Ian Murray and Vernon Coker when they resigned as as part of the so-called coup. Um, I was the only one of us not to publish and, um, and uh, not to publish my resignation letter because my resignation, resignation letter focused on um, how he was dealing with anti-Semitism. That was at the, you know, that was the, the end of June, but before the Chakrabarti launch. And I didn't publish it because I was aware of how much damage I as a Jewish woman would be doing to the leader of the Labour Party if I had publicly said 
that he was not dealing with racism in the Labour Party. That was on the Monday. On the Thursday was the Chakrabarti launch. So I'd done it by Thursday. Um, there's lots been said and written and nonsense and conspiracies about what happened at the Chakrabarti event. For the record, a man who I'd never met before refused to give me a bit of paper. He pointed, when it was pointed out we were at an event to talk about anti-Semitism and I was a Jewish MP sitting in the room, he pointed at my Star of David, he wrote down my name and then he raised me during a question and said that I was colluding with the media. A trope that was written as a trope in the report that was published that day. With racism, context is everything and the context needs to be recognised at that environment. It wasn't me hounding out a lifelong anti-racist. That man had been in the Labour Party for six weeks. Um, so all of that was nonsense. Um, how the Labour Party then dealt with that case, which took nearly two years to deal with, just became um, symbolic of how appalling it all was. That weekend is when my life became really difficult. That's when my first death threats appeared. And there is a difference for everybody, by the way, between abuse and threats. Um, we all get a lot of abuse if you're a woman in the public eye or if you touch on, you know, as you do, get a huge amount of abuse. And you've got to look at it, or someone's got to look at it, because every so often it crosses from abuse to threat. Um, and that weekend is when it crossed over to threat for me. And it hasn't gone away. It hasn't gone away since the election. So it still continues. It's continued this week. So you might be uniquely placed to discuss this um, because of your work with Hope Not Hate. There are groups like Jewish Voice of Labour who, among them, have people who are very close friends with Jeremy Corbyn who would argue that anti-Semitism was cooked up. Uh, they would point to your membership of Labour Friends for Israel and they would say, well, we're pro-Palestinian and all of this is just a guise, it's to attack the left. Because they have Jewish identity, um, the Labour Party has relied on them to sort of become representative uh, in a way that they don't like JLM being. So what what would you say to that? I'd say that JLM was founded 100 years ago and was one of the founder organisations of the Labour Party and represents the views of mainstream left-wing Jews. I'd say that JVL has a membership of about 30, as far as I know, but it's definitely less than 100. It is not representative of anybody except themselves. It's not got a democratic structure and it's got, and most of them have no place in the Labour Party. And for someone who has to start a sentence with, as a Jew, as part of their identity to defend the undefensible, then they need to look at themselves in the mirror. I mean, they've got no right to participate in this debate as far as I'm concerned. If they are, as a Jew, prepared to throw overboard Jew the Jewish community in the UK, then who are they? But for me, I think the bit that is so difficult but also has become clear-cut this is about anti-semitism in the uk this is no longer about i mean there there has always been issues around israel palestine on the left ever since the yom kippur war there has been issues on the left about israel palestine now and what we've seen in the uk is that zio and zionist was code for jew and this has been about the role of british jews in society i mean I don't think that when someone says I haven't got human blood because I'm Jewish, that they're talking about me in an, in an Israeli context. I think they just don't like Jews. I think when someone calls me a Margaret Hodge Zionist cum buckets, 
I don't think they're talking about us really as Zionists at that point because what have Margaret Hodge and I got in common with each other in terms of, you know, outside of the fact that, you know, we both happen to be Jewish. Neither of us talk about Israel in Parliament. In fact, if you search Hansard for me and the word Israel, you won't find anything because I'd never thought I had anything of value to add to that debate because it was already so polarised. And I would be vehemently opposed to Netanyahu and to the settlements and but I desperately, even more so after the experiences of the last four years, think that the Jewish people have a right to self-determination in the homeland because after this experience, the community needs somewhere that they can point to that is safe and secure for them. Um, so this is... The, the weaponisation of anti-Semitism, the throwing about of the word smear, that's been done by people... That, you know, they have turned racism into an attack and they have attacked the targets of racism and the victims of racism in a way that would be simply unacceptable if the far right were doing it and that's my big issue and that's where it, this is why it's been so painful is that it's been people that say that you're on that um, they're on your side they're not on my side they're not on anyone's side and they've used cover and jeremy could have fixed this right at the beginning and could have fixed this at any point in the last four years and it hasn't. And so you get from the point where I don't think he wanted to see it at the beginning and then it became such an issue, I think he now believes in it. I mean, I think that, you know, I think Jeremy... I can't tell you whether Jeremy's a racist or not, but I think his behaviour suggests that he might be. So you have some examples I here do. that, that so, you, you wanted to throw a quiz for me. Yeah, so I don't... I mean, I hated... I can't tell you how much I've hated this part of... My associate. I've been a proud member of the Labour Party for as long as I could be a member of the Labour Party. I was born into the party. I used to earn my pocket money delivering my mum's Labour Party leaflets. I love the Labour Party. It is who I am. This has been horrible. Um, and so while other people are confident and comfortable reading their abuse, I've really hated it. So I didn't want to do that. Instead, what I did when I was asked to present to the women's PLP about what was going on, how women were being targeted after Luciana left is that I um, did a quiz. So here you go. Who said this? Labour Party supporter or neo-Nazi? Okay, I'm, I'm ready. Okay. Maybe most Jews are peaceful, but until they recognise and destroy their growing Zionist cancer, they must be held responsible. That was Mr Steve Topple of the Canary. Oh, impressive. So Labour Party supporter. Fortunately for Mrs Smeave, the British people have very little knowledge about Zionism, global finance and real history in general. They basically aren't interested in politics and only what they can get from a very strictly controlled corrupt British media. That's a left winger. That's a neo-Nazi. <laughs> I thought I was going to be good at this. but <laughs> That was uh, former BNP councillor Steve Batkin. Um, okay. Ruth Smith was given her safe seat to shill for Israel's interests. Wonder what her constituents now think of their APAC CIA affiliated MP. Okay, that's going to be left wing. That is left wing. Um, the gallows would be a fine and fitting place for this uh, dyke piece of yid shit to swing from. That's a neo Nazi. That's left wing. Fucking <laughs> yeah. um, Hitler would have had a solution to the Israel problem. That's. I mean, my gut's telling me right wing, but I feel like because they've they've put Hitler in there, I, I don't know, I'm going to go with left wing on that one. It is left wing. That was a Labour Party councillor. That was a Labour Party councillor. That was a Labour Party councillor. Can you tell me the Labour Party councillor's name? That was Damien Intercott. Wow. Um, 
The truth is the Zionists, after years of tolerating free speech on the issue of Israel, are no longer willing to tolerate it and want to purge the Labour Party of any critics of Israel. The Labour Party leadership, in my opinion, will eventually give in to Zionist demands and become a fully-fledged Zionist party. Is that a right-winger? That is a right-winger. <laughs> but it is very difficult to tell the difference it, I between mean, the Honestly, two. and I, I look at a lot of this stuff, and I have been dealing with a lot of this stuff for many years now, and I struggled with that <laughs> yeah. so um wow and i mean that that's incredible really and 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 you were going through that from people that were self-identified corbyn supporters or even you know standing for the labor party and you would try and raise these issues and, and you would read these out at parliamentary labor party meetings and what would the response be from jeremy corbyn and you know his associates like seamus Milne when you when you try to raise them so my worst so i tried with jeremy anger i tried emotion i did passive aggressive i tried intellectual i did matter of fact i tried every which way to touch him in order for this to go away because fundamentally i just wanted this to go away i want this to be fixed i never want to have to talk about racism in the labor party ever again um and at its worst, um, so there was an example at Parliamentary Committee, which is private, but you know, I suppose I'm not covered by that right now. Um, Christine Shawcroft became chair of disputes. And I went on Twitter, which I'm not meant to do, but I went on Twitter and my um, abuse had spiked within the three hours of the announcement along the lines of, um, I wish they could get away with saying whatever they wanted now because they weren't going to get done. That was the premise. It was on Wednesday, so it was Parliamentary Committee. So I raised that with Jeremy. It was like, I'm getting yet more abuse today. I haven't said anything. I haven't done anything. And all because of who you've appointed to be chair of disputes. And uh, he looked at the wall, not at me, and said, I'm really sorry, Reed's getting more abuse. He was like, I'm literally sitting here. I'm a single woman, relatively young. And what duty of care have you got? I mean, there have been moments that are just devastating because there was no duty of care. There was no empathy. There was no engagement. Some of this was just so incredibly shocking. People threatened to hurt Luciana. They threatened to hurt me and Margaret and Yvette Cooper on one occasion. And the Labour Party chose not to call the police, even though the complaints had come in and they didn't tell us either. So we didn't know that there were threats, there were physical threats being placed to us. What duty of care is that? Where does that fit? Where does that fit into the ethos of kinder, gentler politics? Where does that fit into the ethos of the, and values of the Labour Party? So for me, that was the bit that was just completely beyond me. I didn't understand that this organisation that was so core to my being, that I'd given my life to, was treating people like this, that, was, that thought this was acceptable, and that for the life of me, I couldn't get anybody to actually do anything I mean, I raised it at every meeting and was dismissed. I, uh, I was patronised. Uh, and then there were these people who would come up to me in private and say that we were brave for raising it and they wouldn't do anything themselves because they were too scared of their own members. And so we left the fight against racism to the targets of the racism. What solidarity is that? Where is that? I mean, I have stood on picket lines against the far right since I was 12 I've been involved in anti-racism campaigning my whole life. When there's been a... a I ran home on hate, for God's sake. So when there's been an attack or something, I've been involved in the solidarity aspect of this. There was no solidarity. 
And I f that's the bit I found so difficult. Um, and that's why the actions of the last four years are unforgivable and painful. And so whatever happens next, it can't possibly be as painful as the last four years. So try and end on some sort of positive note after all of that. Um, what do you think the Labour Party needs to do to win power? Oh, it needs to be so much better. It needs to recognise how difficult it is to win elections. Um, we sort of, we seem to think, especially because there wasn't a Labour Party apparently for a lot of people before 2015, that winning elections was really easy. And winning elections is actually quite hard. So um, we need to be prepared for graft. We need to be competent at an organisational level again. It'd be really great if they weren't doing telephone canvassing from... Uh, the West Midlands for Streatham during the general election campaign and that my free post landed, you know, before the election. Um, so there's some fundamental, easy, basic stuff. Um, so competence would be good. But it's also about being brave about our values, about, about what they mean. I mean, my ver everyone's got a different version of what their socialism is. My socialism is clear. I want everybody to earn enough money that they can put food on the table, they can go on holiday once a year with their kids and they've not got to worry about what's happening around them. They can just have a nice life. That is a nice version of socialism in my world. Um, and so we've got, how do we get to, that is revolutionary at the moment because we're so far away from it. So how do we get there? And is if our goal is to end child poverty, then what does that look like? If our goal is to deal with automation, which is exciting, how do we hold people's hands? How, a four-day week was not a stupid idea if the fifth day was everybody upskilling and you tied it into lifelong learning. Investing billions of pounds in digital infrastructure, which is what the broadband project really was, if you articulated it as infrastructure, it wasn't about giving free, it should never have been about free broadband, it was about investing in infrastructure, but it's about understanding why those things are relevant within our values. This is all doable if we actually start listening and engaging with the people that we want to represent again. And we don't talk to them, but we talk... Uh, we don't talk to them and at them, but we actually have a conversation and we have a chat and we're normal. Being normal would be quite nice. No more pontificating about Venezuela. Let's talk about what's happening down your street. Thank you so much for joining us, Ruth. Thank you for listening to Corbynism the Postmortem. I'd like to thank my guest Ruth Smith for joining us. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash And I look forward to seeing you all next week. <laughs>